Welcome to Shark Guide to Slim, a research-based podcast on dieting and nutrition brought to you by GetMealPlans.com. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon. In this episode, we're learning the difference between fasting and caloric decrease from a physical and psychological perspective, which also means you're going to learn a lot about ghrelin and ketosis. If you've ever felt like diet is basically die with a T on the end, or you've been miserably hungry while trying to lose weight, or you started having really obsessive food thoughts, then this episode will really help you understand why that happens and what you can do about it. After last season, I swore up and down I wouldn't talk any more about fasting because I'd exhausted that topic and really wanted to focus on the brain. And I was committed. I went face down into stacks of research on neuroscience and uncovered some seriously cool studies on food psychology, and I became completely obsessed with CBT, which stands for Cognitive Behavior Therapy, my fave. But then right at the end, my work whipped right back around to fasting, so here we are again. But you know, that's cool. I like a bridge. And it's sort of neat that all the research from season one fits together with season two. Anyway. In season one, I cracked open the myth about starvation mode. It doesn't exist. There's not a scrap of evidence to support the idea that you're not losing weight because you're not eating enough. Now, if you go a long time with reduced calories, your metabolism may slow down a bit, but it doesn't slow enough to stop weight loss completely. And even if you did slow your metabolism, you can't break your metabolism and you also can't fan the metabolic flames and make it faster by eating small meals. That is still the worst diet advice ever, by the way, and we're going to actually come back to it in this episode. But if you need a refresher like deep down in the science, listen to season one, episode three. Okay, so while starvation mode doesn't exist, starvation does. And by starvation, I mean famine, which fortunately none of us listening to or me recording this podcast are at risk for. However, if you eat well below your calorie needs for a long time and you've coupled that with exercise or you're otherwise suffering mentally, and as I said, many of us feel diets are die with a T on the end, that's suffering. Well, then you may experience extreme hunger, making starvation, quote, feel incredibly real. And that can be a problem both physically and psychology. And that's what we're getting into right now. Okay, so here's the research. When I started poking holes in the myth around starvation mode last season, I referenced the Minnesota starvation experiment from the 1940s. The main goal was to get the men to lose about 2.5 pounds per week, which is pretty aggressive weight loss for someone who is already at a healthy weight with very little body fat to lose, which is where these men were that started. So to accomplish this, to make the men lose weight, the men were given less than half of the calories they needed to survive, and they were required to walk about 22 miles a week. So super intense stuff. Their diet was also primarily carbohydrate-based, breads, pasta, tubers. There was little to no dairy, very little meat, and this was because the researchers were trying to mimic the diet of people in war-torn areas. If starving them to extreme thinness was the goal, then the study was a huge success. The pictures of these men at the end of the study are really hard to look at, but they did lose weight. They also lost a lot of muscle mass, which makes sense. When your body starts starving and can't tap into body stores of fat, it will cannibalize muscle as a survival mechanism. The term for this is glyconeogenesis, and you're going to hear that again later. 
The men also reported psychological changes like obsessive food thoughts. And that reminded me of the Robertson family, who I talked about way in the beginning of season one. If you don't remember them, the Robertson family survived on the ocean for 38 days. It's the longest ocean survival we know of. And although they caught and ate more than enough fish and sea turtles to eat, they were plagued with constant and intense hunger. And war hero Louis Zamperini, who is amazing and you definitely want to read Unbroken, anyway, he was also at sea for a really long time, but without food or very, very little bit of it. And he too had like these really obsessive food thoughts. In fact, he fantasized more about food than he fantasized about rescue or his family or just anything happy. It was just all food all the time. But let's compare all of this to the case of Angus Barbieri, who fasted for over a year in 1965. That's right, this guy didn't eat any food. He was on a water plus some coffee and tea fast for over 365 days. The grand total was something like 380. He started at 456 pounds and lost a total of 276 pounds by the end. He was about 180 when he finished. But he felt good. He felt healthy and his doctors all said he was healthy and he didn't experience these obsessive food thoughts or all of this extreme hunger, even though the man literally didn't eat anything for over a year. I'm gonna come back to Barbieri in a minute. For now, let's pop ahead really quick to last year and Andrew Taylor. Andrew Taylor only ate potatoes for all of 2016. At the beginning, he was 335 pounds and he lost over 100 pounds by the end of the year. Now, unlike Barbieri, Taylor was eating something, in his case, potatoes, but his diet was strikingly similar to those Minnesota men. And the thing is, Taylor also felt good, really good. He even had super improved blood work and he also experienced no obsessive food thoughts. In fact, when reporters started asking Taylor in December, like what was he super excited to eat? What was his first food gonna be? He really struggled to answer. He actually was just happy to go on eating potatoes. I've also had friends and colleagues who water fasted for a few days and some for over a month. And they do it for a variety of reasons. Two do it for health reasons. One as a protocol for cancer treatment, and there's some really cool research there, which I'll link to in the show notes. And the other one does it as sort of a treatment for Lyme disease. And then other friends do it for religious reasons. FYI, Jesus fasted for 40 days. So I asked you know, my friends and my colleagues about their experiences, and I dove way down into fasting forums. There's a whole community of people who fast. I mean, a lot of people fast and for all different reasons. But whatever the reason, the general consensus is everyone who's voluntarily fasting experiences some hunger and irritation early on, but hunger completely like all out vanishes after about three days and they're totally fine. They're literally not hungry. And a lot of people, they actually decide how to end their fast. Like when are they gonna end their fast? When their hunger returns. And this seems to be somewhere between 10 and 14 days, depending on the person. From an evolutionary survival standpoint, this all makes perfect sense. Initially, when you go without food, your body is like, hey, hey you, you forgot, we need to eat. Um, here's a hunger signal to remind you. It's sort of like your car turning the like warning gas light on. 
but then you still don't eat. So the body, like a petulant child, ramps up the signal. In my car's case, it goes from an orange to a red light when I go from a quarter of a tank to one fourth of a tank. So in the body, this is like our hunger intensifying. It's the same way that, you know, you might start feeling really, really hungry or chewing your fingernails or wanting to gnaw off your arm. And that's also the time when, you know, we really start to have our thoughts drifting to food. It becomes hard to concentrate and we're so busy thinking about food. Now, up until that moment, our body was operating as usual. There was no cause for concern. It's sort of like, how many times have you left work with less than a quarter tank of gas, but you're not worried about it because you know you could make it home, you've done it before, but oh crap, there's traffic and shiitake, the gas station you normally stop at along the way, is closed and it was the only gas station for miles. So at this point, a little bit of panic sets in. You turn off the AC, roll down the windows, maybe turn off the radio, start crossing your fingers and praying. And maybe you also lift your foot off the pedal every time you go downhill to sort of save a little bit of gas. Your body is doing this too. And that's when you start feeling like brain fog or you start to get really kind of lethargic. But here's where your body and car start to differ. Eventually your car actually runs out of gas and you're stranded on the side of the road and have to call AAA. Your body runs out too, but luckily your body has a spare can of gas in your trunk. And yes, that was both literal and metaphorical. All right, so your body starts using your fat. This process is called ketosis and we're gonna come back to that in a minute. When you go into ketosis, which takes about three days, your hunger drive is suppressed. Why? You need to find food to survive, and your animal body knows this. It also knows you're not going to find food doing it sitting in a cave feeling hungry, weak, miserable, and sorry for yourself. So hunger is suppressed as a protective measure so you can feel good again and get up and go out and go find some damn food. And this all perfectly explains why fasters stop feeling hungry after about three days. It also helps explain why many fasters, and I'm included in this group, report enhanced mental clarity at this particular stage. From a survival instinct, this too makes sense. If you only have one spare can of gas, you've got to get the most out of it to find replacement fuel as quickly as possible. You need to be laser focused. It's game time. And since this is a science-based podcast and not an anecdotal one, the levels of ghrelin in the blood of people fasting confirm all of this. Ghrelin is also called the hunger hormone, and it's produced in the gastrointestinal tract. It functions as a neuropeptide in the CNS, the central nervous system. Basically, it's a neuron text message. Ghrelin regulates appetite, and it's secreted when the stomach is empty. This is like a text message to your brain saying, yo, no food down here, saying, hey, you're hungry. Once the stomach is stretched with consumed food, secretion of ghrelin stops. This is one reason why wait 15 minutes before getting seconds is such excellent advice. It gives your stomach and brain a chance to sort of send text messages and read them. Now, if you remember leptin from last season, leptin is the Sadie hormone, ghrelin is basically the direct opposite. All right, so what does ghrelin have to do with the fasting experience? The longer people fast, that is, the longer they go without food, the more their ghrelin decreases. And we see this clearly in the blood work of people fasting. What I found particularly interesting looking at their blood work was how their body appeared to be adapted to eating. Specifically, in the first few days of fasting, the subject's ghrelin peaked at traditional mealtimes, even though the subjects were fasting. The body was 
anticipating, prepared, stimulating their hunger like clockwork. With each passing day, these peaks in ghrelin became smaller and smaller. So these results heavily suggest, if not conclusively prove, that you can literally train yourself to be hungry at certain times through systematic eating. This also confirms why six small meals a day or constant eating, such as snacking, is such a bad idea, especially when you're trying to lose weight. It puts you completely out of touch with hunger, stimulates false hunger, and the farther you are from true hunger in general, the more you'll overeat. Sidebar, I haven't done a lot of research on this yet, but I'm still looking into it. I suspect with bigger but fewer meals, there's probably a whole lot less ghrelin. One last note about the ghrelin peaks. They were literally peaks. This means hunger performs like a wave. It eventually breaks. This happens every time you feel hungry, whether you're on a long fast or it's just your normal day. Most dieters fear their hunger will get so big and so out of control it will get away from them. And while hunger does peak, it also recedes and the top of the wave is not as high as you think. And we've all experienced this, all of us, I promise, you've experienced this hunger wave. We've had days at work where come lunchtime and we're plenty hungry, but our boss is mad at us or we're on a deadline, so we just keep working. We work through lunch. At some point, we stop feeling hunger. We probably don't notice it. And it isn't until hours later, usually when we start feeling droopy or it's getting close to dinner, that we remember, oops, we totally forgot to eat. This happens to me a lot, actually not at work, but when I'm vacationing, walking is a natural appetite suppressant for me, so if you stick me in a new city where I'm walking around and touring new stuff all day, I completely forget about eating because I'm too busy being fascinated and taking pictures. I can't do this at home where my kitchen calls my names, but I can do this at the mall. In fact, the next time I decide to do a fast, I'm going to go shopping and do tons of errands. Okay, so now that you understand about ghrelin, let's talk super fast about ketosis. Ketosis equals fat burning mode. Keep that in mind. Ketosis, fat burning mode. If you don't eat anything for a really long time, you'll enter ketosis, which is when your body primarily uses ketones derived from fat stored on your body or fats you ingest for energy instead of glucose, blood sugar. You can also enter ketosis by eating an extremely high amount of fat and a very low amount of carbohydrates. In fact, this was the whole purpose of why people did Atkins or its more modern sibling, the ketogenic diet. But it's not an all-you-can-eat fat buffet. The only way a ketogenic diet will work for fat loss is when there are fewer calories coming in than you need to maintain your weight because there is always that one simple truth with dieting and weight loss. However, you can also get to this ketosis state with a 100% carbohydrate diet, meaning zero fat. I like to call this potasis because it involves potatoes, but that's another hack for another time. But wait, 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 wait. I totally got sidetracked. So let's, let's dial it all back. What are the differences here? Why are there such dramatic, different physiological and psychological responses between the Minnesota men, Barbieri, Taylor, the Robertson family, and all these fun time fasters? There are two theories or scientific camps that sort of explain this. The first is that the Minnesota men were not fasting. They were still eating. They were drastically eating decreased calories, but it was still enough to keep them out of ketosis, which meant their hunger drive never quieted, and they were never able to use their body fat for energy. And this would also explain their muscle loss because without entering ketosis, gluconeogenesis would absolutely be necessary. 
So using my pantry example from last season, there was basically a lock around the pantry door that they couldn't open. The help was there, but not accessible. The other explanation is that light meals keep you ravenously hungry, that eating turns on hunger. And this is something I've definitely experienced both with fasting long-term and through intermittent fasting. I might not be very hungry when I break my fast with food, but as soon as I start eating within the first few bites, my hunger comes out to play in full force. And if I'm on an airplane and I feel hungry, I will actually put off eating as long as I can, usually until the flight is over, because I know my hunger wave will go away. But if I get into it and I eat like a little snack or something that I have, like an apple or the pretzels they give you, I'll wind up more miserable because I'll plow through that snack, feel 10 times hungrier and have no immediate access to food to solve that situation. So I just have to sit there and take it. No, thanks. Now, I've had a lot of difficulty sciencing all of this, meaning plenty of experts make this argument and push this theory, but it's not one that's easily proved with blood work or data. The cleanest justification or scientific backing I've got for you here is that hunger is hormonal and eating or not eating affects hormones and ghrelin is a hormone, so there. I know, that was unsatisfactory, but that's metabolic endocrinology for you. And I also can't overstate this. The Minnesota men were not fat to begin with. They had little fat to lose at the start. It's difficult to compare the forced starvation of a thin person in famine to an overweight person not in famine, but trying to reduce calories to burn the fat stores that were created for that very purpose. This alone could explain why Taylor and Barbieri had completely different experiences. But there's still one more massive component that no one else is considering. And that's the basis of this entire season, which is the mental suffering component. That was something I noticed when interviewing our members who tried intermittent fasting for episode 11 of season one. It was sort of a wrap up. This is where we are now. People loved fasting or they hated it. When I was looking back over the details of the Minnesota experiment, I found it super fascinating that initially the men were allowed to chew gum until it was discovered that some of the participants were chewing 40 packs a day. This jumped out at me because when I was interviewing our members who tried intermittent fasting for both positive and negative experiences, there was a whole lot of them who admitted to binging on gum, diet soda, packets of mustard, or Splenda. I started to wonder what role mindset played here in terms of thinking, I'm fasting to beat cancer, yeah, versus I'm depriving myself, I hate dieting. Or how rule followers like me love things that are clearly black and white because it reduces anxiety for us, while others rage against being told what to do. And I'm really gonna dig into this in a future episode. Going back to the mental suffering component, I think this is an equally strong explanation for why there is such dramatic, different physiological and psychological responses to fasting and caloric deprivation or just a decrease in calories. And there is some good research that backs this up. If you remember the pudding study from last season when I talked about exercise, the short of it is anytime we suffer and whether you're willing to admit it or not, exercise is a form of suffering for most of us, we seek rewards, usually in the form of food, consciously and subconsciously. Listen to season one, episode 10 if you want more info. But this differing mindset also helps explain why I do so incredibly well with fasting in any form and my husband doesn't. I don't think that I have more willpower or discipline than him. If I do, it's not by much. 
But the difference is I'm always really excited about a fast. I'm curious about the research and the results. I practically spin like a top. I'm so ready to spit in tubes and test my blood sugar and I can't wait to turn my toilet into a laboratory. There, I said it. But my husband, mm, does not share this enthusiasm. In fact, he often drops out of my studies because he finds he gets too depressed. Even when he's like really excited and he's curious or he just really wants to help me out, I've just seen it happen time and time again where he just becomes so melancholy and so sad. And then there's me where people start being like, Lizzie, did you pop a Percocet? Why are you bouncing off the walls? By the way, I'm recording this while I'm in the middle of a fast. Anyway, interesting, interesting stuff, and I can't wait to dig into neuroscience and psychology and mindsets and willpower and all that goodness with you this season. But for now, what can you take away from this episode? Fasting, meaning eating nothing, is definitely different than caloric restriction, meaning eating less. And if you're going to eat less, you probably don't want to divide the food up. Lighter meals like snacking can keep you ravenously hungry, and I suspect it also increases your ghrelin, which makes you more hungry. And speaking of hunger, you can condition your body to be hungry, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but something you should definitely stay aware of. And hunger is also a wave, meaning it peaks, but it also recedes. And the motion of the hunger ocean gets less dramatic the more and longer you go without food. I really tried to make that work. In the show notes to this podcast episode, I've included a few other flaws, or maybe not flaws, but things to consider when reading and looking at the Minnesota Starvation Study and what that all means here. And I've also included some things like what effect the specific diet had on the diet. Check out the transcript and show notes at getmealplans.com slash podcast to learn more. Finally, what's happening the rest of this season, season two of the Shortcut to Slim podcast, a lot of science and shortcuts. Hacks you can do with your environment and your psyche so you can succeed to slim without all the blood, sweat, and tears and willpower. Discipline is super great, guys, but just being awesome without worrying about it is even better. So stay tuned. You've been listening to Shortcut to Slim. Download your free research-based seven-day meal plan at getmealplans.com and leave the guesswork and science to me. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon. And if you found this podcast helpful, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps.